On Tuesday, July 17, 1973, a local chef and father of two, Ting Fong Chan, walked home from his night shift in Manitoba, Winnipeg, Canada. At around 6 a.m., his body was found beaten and stabbed to death near a construction site. An eyewitness saw the assailants through the darkness and described the group as four or five men with long hair. The police asked if the assailants may have been indigenous. The eyewitness couldn't say either way. Without a definitive answer, investigators began canvassing the local indigenous population, and a man named Adam Woodhouse told them about a recent gathering at his home, attended by Clarence and Russell Woodhouse, as well as their cousin Brian Anderson. However, this gathering happened on Thursday night, not on Monday into Tuesday, the night of the crime. Despite the confusion over the date, as well as the uncertainty over the assailant's ethnicity, Clarence and Russell Woodhouse, Brian Anderson, as well as their younger friend Alan Woodhouse, underwent a series of coercive and in some cases violent interrogations, resulting in four false confessions written in a language in which none of them were entirely fluent. The trial consisted of the presentation of these alleged confessions against four matching recantations, as well as alibi witnesses and accusations of police misconduct and brutality. Fifty years later, Brian Anderson and Alan Woodhouse share their harrowing story and the struggle to clear their names. This is Wrongful Conviction. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. This is an episode. It's going to take everyone who listens on a journey, not just far away, because this took place in the Great White North, but also to a place of disbelief for how a system, in this case, the system in Canada, can do what it does to innocent civilians. Let me introduce our guests, and then we'll explain more about the case. With us, we have two wrongfully convicted men. First of all, Brian Anderson, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. I'm, I'm sorry you're here under the circumstances, but I'm happy you're here. Thank you. And with us as well is Alan Woodhouse. So grateful for you being here as well. Thank you very much for having me here today. And 
Joining us is an incredible woman named Bhavan Sodi. Bhavan is the attorney of record for these men. She was the legal director at Innocence Canada at the time that she got involved with this case. And she's currently got one of the most amazing and interesting jobs, I think, in the entire world of criminal justice. She is the intake director at the Innocence Project of New York. So, Bhavan, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thanks so much for having us, Jason. So... Bobbin, I, I almost feel like I want to let you set the stage here. I mean, this case is so nuts. It involves lies from people in positions of power, false confessions. At least one of the men didn't even speak the language of the confession that he was signing that he didn't even know was a confession. Jason, for me, this was one of the first cases I worked on in my role as legal director at Innocence Canada. And it's one of those cases that right off the bat, you know that something isn't right. You know, my co-counsel, Jerome Kennedy, has always put it best. We started off knowing that this was a 1973 case. It involved the Winnipeg Police Service, four young Indigenous men, and George Dangerfield. And as far as Innocence Canada was concerned, that is a recipe for wrongful conviction. And George Dangerfield, just what a name for a guy who has the dubious distinction of being the crown prosecutor who was responsible for the most wrongful convictions in Canadian history. And he was unfortunately the top prosecutor in Manitoba, Canada for 30 years. And just to paint a picture of the guys who ended up getting caught in this nightmare, Brian Anderson, who's with us today, had a seventh grade education and no knowledge of the criminal legal system. He grew up on the Fairford Indian Reserve between Lake Manitoba and Lake St. Martin, about 230 kilometers or 143 miles north of Winnipeg. The eldest of 10 children. At 18, he moved to Winnipeg to work and live with his grandparents. And his first language was not English. He barely spoke English at all. His, his first language was Ojibwe, Salto, and he had no criminal record whatsoever. This is important. That's important to know, but it, it turned out not to matter in this case. So, Brian, tell me about your life growing up. Did you have a happy childhood? Yes, I did. I think I did. <laughs> you don't know anything about life at that age. So, right, you're a kid. Uh, I mean, let's face it, it as, as a teenager, you're just sort of, yeah, exactly, figuring it out just like anybody else. And, Alan, uh, what about for you? You lived on the Fairford Indian Reserve as well with English as a second language. You had a ninth grade education. There you were 17 years old, with, also with no criminal record, and moved to Winnipeg about two months before this awful crime happened. So, Alan, what was your life like growing up in those times, from what you can remember? Well, my childhood was pretty rugged, so to speak. I have eight brothers and two sisters, so that was a lot of people. Brian's younger brother, Ivan, he used to be my, my, my hangout buddy because we were about the same age. Brian was a bit older, so he hung out with the, the older crowd. Uh, well, the only reason I was in Winnipeg is because to look for work. There's no work in, in the reserve, of course. Because I was over 16. So I just moved to Winnipeg about a couple months when I got arrested. Right. And before you were arrested, the police picked up Clarence Woodhouse, followed by Russell Woodhouse, then you, Alan Woodhouse, and lastly, Brian Anderson. And the whole thing started with a statement from Adam Woodhouse. First of all, that's a lot of Woodhouses. So just to keep things straight for our audience, from what I gather, Woodhouse must be a common name. Brian, are any of you guys related? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, they are my cousins, which is the Woodhouses, Clarence and Russell. We had the same grandfather. We knew each other right from when we were little kids. I'm not related to any of them, actually. Not even Adam Woodhouse. So Clarence and Russell were related to you, Brian, but Adam and Alan aren't related to any of you guys, right? 
Yes. So the crime itself, July 17th, 1973, a 40-year-old man named Ting Fong Chan was beaten and stabbed to death near a downtown construction site in Manitoba, which is Winnipeg. Mr. Chan was a father of two and a chef at a restaurant called The Beachcomber. He was walking home from the night shift, and his body was found at 6 a.m. on the 17th. So then comes this ridiculous, quote-unquote, investigation. For the first couple of days after Ting Fong Chan's body was found, no investigation occurred. Essentially, they were doing a scan of the neighborhood, and they came across a witness named Daisy Towell. And Daisy, what's interesting about her is she didn't really see much at all. What she claims to have seen under the light of a lamppost in the middle of the night without her glasses, and she indicated that she had very poor vision, was the outline of four or five individuals that had long hair. And when the officers put it to her, whether she thought they were indigenous, she said, well, yes, they could be. And, you know, the important point here is, this was the 70s. And so I'm presuming a lot of people had long hair. I have fond memories of that era. I mean, long hair, great music. And this witness could have easily and vaguely stuck me into this group as well. I mean, I fit that much of the description. That's the only description they had. So it's important to note that the police offered this blurry sighted eyewitness, the suggestion that the assailants were indigenous, not the other way around. And Alan, I know you eventually became a jailhouse lawyer. Does it strike you as business as usual for the police in that era when in doubt, just pick an indigenous guy, right? Just start targeting indigenous people. Oh, yeah. I mean, anything goes wrong, right? away. it's native people, you know. Even in the reserve, you know, something happens outside the reserve. There's other community out there, right away, there's native people, you know. There'd be police driving around looking for so-and-so, you know. I mean, that's the reality of it, unfortunately. The police ended up canvassing the neighborhood on the lookout, essentially, for young Indigenous men. And that's how a few days later, they came upon Adam Woodhouse's house and spoke to him. They also spoke to his common-law partner and his common-law partner's daughter. And what I will say is, English wasn't even the first language of these witnesses. So Adam was also someone who was struggling to understand this context wasn't provided an interpreter, and was participating. And so when they spoke to Adam on July 22nd, he said, well, yes, on the night of the murder, I, I had a, a group of young Indigenous men with me, including Brian Anderson, Clarence Woodhouse, and Russell Woodhouse. And he distinctly didn't mention Alan. And what's interesting about the fact that he said that is almost immediately following his common-law partner and his common-law partner's daughter said, Yes, these young men were at our house, but that actually occurred Thursday and not on the night in question. And the reason that's interesting is a lot of the information that Adam was recalling from the evening actually related to things that happened on Thursday. So, for example, he referenced receiving his check. He usually receives that on a Thursday night. He referenced using that check in order to buy beer again as a result of what happened on Thursday night. But essentially, the police, ignoring what you know, his common-law partner and her daughter said, decided to venture out. And this is when this web began to weave. And within 24 hours, they managed to get you know, alleged confessions from Clarence Woodhouse, Russell Woodhouse, Alan Woodhouse, and Brian Anderson. Wow. So 
no, I mean, not they didn't even pretend to do a real investigation. Just the assumption by the police that the assailants were indigenous. And Adam Woodhouse told them about a gathering at his home with Clarence Russell and Brian. Nothing about a murder or any conspiracy to commit murder or any criminal activity at all. And it even turned out to be the wrong night entirely. Monday into Tuesday was when it happened. This was Thursday. But that didn't matter. And now the interrogations and false confessions begin in a language you guys didn't even understand. I think a really important part of this is understanding the sequence of the confessions, just to understand how they utilized classic re-technique, despite the fact that everything pointed against them. So yes, all four confessions, and this is important, all four of the confessions that these boys are alleged to have made start off with the exact same sentence. All four of them say, on Monday night, I was. And when I read that, I knew that something was amiss. We have four men who are alleged to have written these confessions in separate rooms, separate circumstances, varying understanding of English, and yet all of their statements start the exact same way. And so that's when I delved into the actual sequence, like how did they obtain them? And what I saw was classic read technique. You know, they started off with Clarence. They took him to the scene, brought him back to the station. They asked him to mark up the body and where it was that he had attacked, you know, Ting Fong Chen, immediately assuming that he was the person responsible. Ultimately, this allegedly led to his confession. And what's interesting about the confession is it's a partial confession. And the only person that's mentioned in it is Russell. Then they go to Russell and they go, look at this confession that Clarence gave you. And what's interesting about that is that Russell didn't even have enough of an understanding of the English language to be able to read the confession that Clarence apparently made. So they brought Clarence into the room with Russell to read to his brother this confession he's alleged to have made. And so Russell apparently makes a confession. Same thing. On Monday night, I was. And so not only does he now mention Clarence himself, but he also references Alan. And so that is how Alan is brought into the story. And so then Alan is arrested. He is also shown the confession that now Clarence has made and subsequently Russell have made. And what's interesting about Alan is he was subjected to physical abuse because he refused to make this confession. That night in that particular, when I got picked up, you know, there was a knock on the door. There was two people standing there in suits. I guess we call them plain clothes now. They asked me what my name was. So I told them who I was. So I said, so he grabbed me on my wrist. I said, you're the one we're looking for. So I said, hey, wait. I said, what's going on? I want to talk to you. He said, so I went downstairs. There was an unmarked car out downstairs. And they took me to the police station. On our way to the police station, I asked him, what was this about? He said, murder. I said, Murder? I thought maybe they had found a dead body and they wanted me to go and recognize uh, somebody's body or see you know what I mean? When we got to the police station, they said, okay, where were you on Tuesday night? So I said, I was at home. Uh, who else was there? There was nobody there. It was just me. My mother and I lived there because she just had that little apartment. And my mother, well, she went out a lot. She drank a lot. But anyway, so I told them I was at home. And they said, oh, there's nobody there. So I said, no, you weren't there. You were at Adams Woodhouse Place. I said, no, I wasn't there. I was there on Thursday. Yeah. They went back and forth for a while. And they got angrier and angrier. And they started getting physical. I mean, they were really rough. I mean, they were they're hitting me. I mean, I was all bloody. 
So after about four hours, they wrote up the statement, told me to sign it, and then you can go. I said, so I signed it. I thought I'd go. And then after they signed it, they handcuffed me. Ultimately, again, interesting, his confession starts off with, on Monday night I was. And the variation there was, now this confession includes Clarence, it includes Russell, it includes Allen, and there is the first reference to Brian Anderson. And so then they go to Brian and they speak to him and they take Brian to the scene. They show him the alleged weapons that were utilized, you know, and they show him the confessions of the other three boys. Like on Monday night, I was. On the 23rd, I got picked up for murder. Like I wasn't even a suspect. I was charged already. They got me to sign a piece of paper, which I did. And I didn't know that was the confession that supposedly I had made. The idea that you were signing a piece of paper in a language you didn't speak with nobody there to guide you or help you or advise you. I read somewhere that you had thought that it might have been just something related to your possessions that they were keeping in storage for you while they arrested you. Is that accurate? Yes. What they do is they make you empty your pockets and then they put stuff aside and you have to sign for them. And that's what I thought it was. That's how crooked they were, you know. They didn't care. Just because they had these witnesses, they were calling them. That's where they based all their stuff from. And so at the end of the day, as a result of this sort of linear sequential experience, now all four boys are alleged to have participated. The statements that start very much the same build on each other. So first you have just Clarence. Then you have Clarence and Russell. Then you have Clarence, Russell, and Allen. And finally, the final statement, Clarence, Russell, Allen, and Brian have participated. And so essentially, you have each of the young men pointing the finger at each other and weaving this web for the police. It actually feels a little bit like a Canadian version of New York City's own horror show known as the Central Park Five, currently known as Exonerated Five, because they used some of the same techniques differently, but, you know, using everybody against each other and, and the physical abuse. And the, it's very important for our audience to know that in 29% of the DNA exonerations, the person who was proven with, with absolute certainty, scientific certainty to be innocent, confessed to the crime they didn't commit. Just like in this case, Bob, and what about physical or forensic evidence? Did they collect any? Did they examine it? Was there any, did they even make a show out of trying to solve this case? So that is where this case gets interesting, Jason. They actually did collect a lot of forensic evidence. The Winnipeg Police Service collected fiber analysis, hair microscopy. So there was three hairs that were grasped in Ting Fong Chan's hands. They had fingerprints, they collected clothing, they undertook presumptive blood tests, there was a series of knives that were collected. And essentially, they used a number of different, you know, and I use air quote, sciences, sciences that have since been dubbed junk science to test these things. But what's amazing about this case is Brian Anderson, Alan Woodhouse, and the other two co-accused were excluded from all of them. So they engaged in this effort to try and get something beyond the confession, undertaking these sciences, you know, again, air quotes, that have contributed to a number of wrongful convictions. But in this instance, remarkably, 
these four men were excluded. So even when they were using these super subjective, absolute junk sciences that are very useful for when you want to conjure up corroborating evidence for a false confession or a misidentification or a jailhouse snitch testimony, even when they tried to cheat, they failed. Where so many other unscrupulous prosecutors and law enforcement officials have succeeded time and time again. So, I mean, I'm sure that there are a number of people in the audience scratching their heads, as I'm doing right now, and saying, wait, I thought she said they were excluded. That's the weirdest thing about this case. So, in every other case I've ever worked on, there's something more. You know, there might be hair microscopy that was performed. There may be fiber analysis that matches. There might be, you know, a smudged fingerprint or some kind of presumptive blood. But this, this is that case that the only thing that ties these individuals to the case are these confessions they're alleged to have made. All of the air quotes science that they tried to utilize excluded them. But they marched right ahead as if it included them, right? Exactly. It just keeps piling up, right? So we have the blind witness, right? We have the false confessions that might as well have been written in Chinese or Greek, Portuguese, because you didn't know what the hell you were signing. And the physical and forensic evidence collected doesn't match. So it's already the pile of exculpatory evidence and, and factors is, is growing and growing. But also you had an alibi. It wasn't like you were by yourself that night, right? That's right. Now, staying at my grandfather's at the time, that's where I was. And Clarence and Russell, that was their residence too. Yes, I was at home. And my mother can confirm that. They asked her where I was on the guy got killed. She said I was at home when she got home. But then she said she was drunk because the bars closed about 12 o'clock. Then she walked from the main street to Isabel Street. So that's about 15 minute to 20 minute walk. So that would be about one o'clock. She said I was at home because she said I was complaining to her about her coming home late because, you know, I had to get up in the morning really. So I don't know I'd be walking at one o'clock in the morning and waking me up. And that's how she remembered. So you guys both underwent preliminary hearings. Alan, you were discharged in November 1973 after the preliminary hearing based on the finding that the statement to police was involuntary and thereby inadmissible. And you were discharged, but you were mentioned in the other statements, and then they were still able to put you on trial, and they had you bumped up from juvenile court into adult court. It just keeps getting worse to stand trial along with Brian and your other two co-defendants, right? That's right. So now we get to the trial. You got George Dangerfield. We talked about the notorious prosecutor. This trial took place February 18th through March 5th. Now, obviously, you've studied it in detail. Bob, and tell us about this trial. The only thing here is the confessions. The trial judge actually says that. And I'm going to read you a quote from his instructions to the jury. The whole case basically against these accused, each of them rests on his own statement. And that sort of summarizes the trial. The The entire length of the trial focused on these statements, and it was essentially a competition on who was telling the truth. You know, you had these supposedly upstanding officers that were presenting this case, vouching for the fact that these individuals had confessed to them. And on the opposite side, 
you had four young Indigenous men who were sort of vilified. They didn't speak English. They weren't provided with interpreters. And essentially, it was their word against the police. The word of the same police officers who had beaten Alan, who was a child. They literally beat him to extract the statement that was then, of course, later presented against him at trial. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the only thing. That's the only thing they had. You know, they said, oh, yeah, he came out and he confessed. You know, of course, that's what the police said. They didn't say anything about the beating. They denied it, of course. Even the statement wasn't true. For instance, uh, the statement said that I had stabbed this person in the stomach a couple of times, but there was no stab wounds in the stomach at all. It's a classic hallmark of a false confession when the details of the statement don't match the physical evidence. And there were also the alibi witnesses. But in reading about the trial, it really made me sort of throw up, want to throw up in my mouth to read that Brian's grandfather was never even called to testify to his alibi. It's insane. But then this part, I don't know, struck me in a different sort of sickening type of way, which is that, Alan, your mother was called to trial, which was appropriate. But from what I understand, the jury didn't hear her full explanation because the judge freaking interrupted her during a pivotal moment of questioning and then sent her home without allowing her to answer the question. Like, what planet are we on? This is madness. Yeah, well, the day, I don't know why the judge was sort of hostile toward her. Yeah, because he said, oh, you don't understand what's going on here. Yeah, go sit down. You know, and so she went and sat down. It seems to me that he just didn't want to hear her say anything. I don't know why. Maybe he didn't want to hear the truth. He didn't want to hear any evidence contrary to what they believed. I mean, as a parent, I think anyone who's listening who is a parent, father, mother, whatever, would feel a sense of outrage that this is the mother with her son's life at stake and the judge is basically treating her as if her life, her son's life, no, none of it matters. Honestly, Jason, it was the moment that I read the sentencing decision. I want to read this passage to you. So these, these are the comments of the trial judge. He says, this is not a jungle where we live. It is not a wild land. We are not subduing this land from anybody. We are not still taking it from wild people. In this community, we want to be able to come and go freely, whether the lights are on in the streets or whether they are out whether the police are patrolling the roads or whether they aren't. And, you know, Jason, extemporaneous comments about jungles and wildness not only add nothing useful to the trial process, but they conjure up stereotypes that can only do unfair damage to Indigenous persons standing trial. March 5th, 1974, Brian Allen and Clarence were found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. And Russell was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to 10 years. So, Brian and Alan, what was that like when that jury came in and, and sent you to prison for the rest of your life? Well, I was shocked. I mean, I was just speechless. It's sort of, I don't, I don't get it. You know, I never thought of killing anyone in my life, ever. I had to just take what was coming to me because, like, uh, I guess you're like a sheep in a slaughterhouse or whatever. Like, you know, they do whatever they want. You, you have no, you have nothing.
Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Once the door locks behind you, you're in that little cell by yourself, and then that's all you do is think. I didn't know how to take it to begin with, like, and I thought, wow, it's just do away with myself, kill myself. And then after thinking about that, I thought, hey, I can't be doing this. I'll be helping those buggers. That's what they're trying to do to me. They try to kill me. Then I promised myself that I would keep going. And I'm still here. Yeah, I think what helped me a lot is I wasn't uh, totally alone because there was Brian, there's Clarence and Russell. So, yeah, I had some kind, some kind of support. Yeah, when I got to prison, I, really, I never realized how many Native people there were there. There was just full of Native people. There was there was hardly any white people there at all. It seems like, seems like a big, giant reserve. When I joined the organization of the Native Brotherhood, I was quite active in prison politics. I was present for the Brotherhood a few times. And not only that, I even became a jailhouse lawyer, of all things. Yeah, so that kept me occupied. I got to pretty good in learning the system. There was a time there I thought, well, 
Now, I don't know where this idea came from. I thought, you know, you can serve your time or you can let the time serve you. I think, yeah. I sort of adopted that philosophy. You pick up books or whatever to try and distract your mind. That kind of uh, kept me sane. Like, you know, I didn't, I didn't go insane at all. I went to school as well, trying to learn something, like, you know, trying to educate myself to try and learn English. At least I could try and speak for myself because my lawyer wouldn't speak for me. Yeah, I finished my, my high school in prison. I took uh, some courses here, like auto mechanics. I took I took electrician, and I work as an electrician every time I'm out. I thought schooling would be the best way to get out as soon as possible. As <laughs> unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way because I spent 17 years in prison before I got a full parole. That's right, Alan. Despite both of you spending your time so well behind the walls, as you both just described, you were not granted parole until 1990. While Brian was initially denied parole in 1980 because the parole board concluded that Brian had a quote unquote obsession to prove his innocence. <laughs> I mean, of course, but they said that that could potentially result in his violating release conditions. Like, what? Okay, what are we, through the looking glass here? I mean, you can't win in that situation. An innocent man not deserving of parole. It's just totally ass backwards. But there was a man that I read about who was a fierce advocate for you, Brian, and that guy's name was Dick Skelding. He was a school teacher, and then I asked him, to help me write a letter to my lawyer. He helped me out, and then he says, oh, I'll send him a letter too, he said. After that, the lawyer I had tried to get him fired because he was trying to help me. And then he was pissed off at that. He said, there's something going on here. He said, something wrong. Like, you're, like a lawyer like that, like, supposed to be helping, and he's against you. And then he says, uh, would you take a lie detector, he said. So I said, okay. And then I passed it, of course. And then after that, he contacted CTV News, and then they came and interviewed me over there. Unfortunately, he died in 1982, but you carried on. And as you mentioned, uh, uh, CTV did its story on, on your case, Brian, called The Anderson Confession. And, you know, sometimes pressure breaks pipes. So you were ultimately released on full parole in 1983, 10 years after your arrest. But then, Alan, you spent 17 years in prison before being granted parole on May 23rd, 1990. Well, they wanted me to admit I'd killed somebody, and I just couldn't bring myself to tell. I, 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 I didn't kill anybody. Finally, I think they sort of said, you know, they, they weren't going to get me to say that I'd killed somebody. I think one of the members said, you know, he said, we can't base our decision based on what what you say. We have to base our decision based on the fact that you, you were convicted, even if you are innocent. They granted me a parole, I think it was in March. And then they said, okay, you can get it on May 23rd, 1990. So I went to the halfway house, you know, which is just another prison. So I stayed there another six months. So it's, sort of, it's a gradual release, you know, you don't just walk out, you know. You know there's some parole officers who have attitude, you know, they're just trying to find excuses to send you back to prison. The current one is actually pretty good right now. So it's actually very good compared to the other ones. Oh, I've had really bad parole officers. I've been suspended a few times. I actually got out uh, on habeas corpus three times. My parole officers revoked my parole. I had to take him to court to reinstate my parole. It took him three times. 
And they finally, they, I told them that next time I catch him on habeas corpus, I will be filing civil suit. So, so, so far, they have left me alone. But like today, I could be suspended right now. You know, I can be in jail tomorrow. That's just the way it is. Brian, for you, parole was revoked and suspended and regranted numerous times. We've talked about this before, you and I, about sort of the prison outside of the prison, right? Yeah, well, I had such a, a racist parole officer. Because of him, I went back and forth. He told me he was an ex-cop. He was really after me, like any little thing. Even when he used to come visit me, he'd put his phone or whatever, tape recorder, aside. He said, well, I'm going to turn this off first so it won't get interrupted. And he's recording me all this time, you know. I could see that. And then he had said, well, like, you know, what we say and what the courts say are two different things. He says, don't bet on it, he told me. Like, you know, like, you're going to go back. Like, he made a decision already that I was going to get revoked, revoked my parole. I was glad to get rid of him. Finally, they gave me another one, which is a woman after that, and then she was nice to me. And I never did went back after that. I'm still with it today. Like, like you know, I have, I have like a chain, like a leash. Like, I can only go so far. Like, a, there's a radius I can't go past 80 kilometers from where I'm at. I can get thrown back in jail for that, for being out of the boundary. Yeah, it's all these years later. It's so crazy that in Canada they do it much the same way we do here, which is try to make their lives as difficult as possible after they're freed, whether they're innocent or guilty. Of course, if you're declared actually innocent, then they don't put you on parole here. But I always say we should build ramps for people coming out of prison so they can get back on their feet, join their community, get back with their family, go to school, become contributing members of society. Instead, we put up roadblocks every place we can. And, and put ice in the road and nails so you get tripped up and you go right back to prison. There's 4,400 different restrictions in America on parole and probation, over 4,400. Some of them make it virtually impossible for somebody to remain free. And it's sad to hear that it's the same way in Canada. Exactly. Like, you know, like what I didn't like about this too is that like somebody come from another part of the world, like on the other side of the world, for example, and come and tell me how to live my life in my own country. You know, that pisses me off. Tries to control my life. Still do. I don't like that. I should be free. everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married yeah. at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. 
I'm very jealous <laughs> of your generation yeah. that didn't have to deal with Instagram and that. Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. We create magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So they have yet to declare you both actually innocent all these decades later while they continue to keep their hooks into you. And as time has passed, the fight to clear your names has remained constant, but the process is maddeningly slow. In fact, the presence of Bobbin with us today starts a while back with a legend in the innocence community who has since then passed. Hurricane Carter's name came up. I was told to, to contact Hurricane Carter. They were called Aidwick, and now they're called Innocence Canada. I didn't know anything about Innocence Canada. There was four cases that came up, people that were convicted from George Dangerfield. Their cases were looked after. They've been dealt with already. And I believe my case was ahead of them, but I haven't been looked at at all. So... Bobbin, when did you and Jerome Kennedy get involved and take us right up to the present to where the case is at right now? Jerome and I became involved in 2017, and that was when Innocence Canada was going under a bit of a shift. So what Jerome Kennedy did was review every single file that was on our roster and evaluate it. I think it was days into me starting my role as legal director, we started working on this case. And so Almost instantly over the course of the next maybe year, year and a half, we were pouring over every document, calling every institution, trying to put together this file and figure out a way in. Because I think the struggle in this case was they were so obviously innocent. The only thing here was the confession. And we just 
couldn't figure out why it was they were convicted. And so we submitted Brian's case at the beginning of 2019 to an organization known as the CCRG. So that's the Criminal Convictions Review Group. And essentially, that is a sub-department of our Ministry of Justice. And in Canada, what this process involves is us filing what is known as a Section 696.1 application. And the ministry on their website provides you about three pages in order to be able to make a a person's claim of innocence. But ultimately, Brian and Alan's combined applications ended up being 300 pages of us noting everything we had found and was accompanied by, I think, almost five or six bankers boxes of evidence we had collected over the years what had initially only started off with, you know, the four confessions. So presently, Brian's was filed in 2019. The CCRG actually approached us and asked us to file Allen's in 2020. And so we filed his application in February, sort of as a supplement to the two. And now um, it's still before the CCRG being considered. And, and it's a long process. We've been waiting for a while and we're really hoping that the minister makes a decision soon. Yeah, it really just pisses me off how easy it is to throw a few good men's lives away. But then to, of course, to undo that dirty work is a, you know, well, now we know it's a 50 year uphill struggle with bankers boxes of material that takes years to amass. And of course, many more years to get in front of anybody who's in a position to do anything about it. That's the thing about wrongful convictions. It is so easy to convict someone. And here we are 50 years later, still trying to undo it. You know, I started on it 2017. It is now 2022, just to get an idea of how long this process takes. And I am just on the tail end of Alan and Brian's efforts to sort of uh, undo what happened to them. And if any of our listeners want to support your efforts, is there a website they can go to? So the ask for us is supporting organizations like Innocence Canada. We have so little resources. And to Brian's point, it takes us years to even get to the point that we have enough resources to be able to review and evaluate a case. And in the absence of us doing so, there is no one else. There is no one else that is doing this work. And so people like Brian are forced to wait in the queue until we have enough resources, ability to reach that file. And this is a human being that is waiting for us, that is waiting for us to review their case. And so all I'd ask, you know, the pitch to the audience would be to support your local wrongful conviction organization, make sure that you're you're able to contribute to them in that way. And when there are policy matters that are coming up or opportunities to, to support, please do, please do. Amen. So keep your ear to the ground, people. Support your local innocence organizations, as well as larger ones like Innocence Canada. Um, I mean, the, the money goes a long way with Innocence Canada, believe me. And we'll have their site linked in the bio. So now we come, of course, to my favorite part of the show. Closing arguments is the section of the show where, first of all, I thank you, all of you, for being here and sharing this un- unreal story. I'm going to turn my microphone off, kick back in my chair with my headphones on, probably close my eyes and just zone in on whatever else you want to share. Bobin, please start us off and then I'll leave it up to you to hand the mic off to whoever you want to have go next. And then 
the other guy will take us off into the sunset. The only thing I will say is for almost 50 years, Brian and Alan have maintained their innocence. They have spent the majority of their life marked as murderers. And yet every day, both of them wake up, continue to fight to clear their name. Um, And, you know, as Jason mentioned, in one of the parole reports that I read, they talk about Brian's obsession with his innocence. And in both Brian and Alan's case, their obsession with proving their innocence has never wavered. Their story is one of enduring strength, determination, and perseverance. Yes, well, I got to keep trying. I can't give up. I need, but uh, I need help. Like, I, there's nothing I can do by myself. Whoever is out there who can help, well, even better. That's what I need. All right. Thank you very much for having me here. It was a great privilege to be here. I would like the audience to know that, you know, we uh, we always think about justice, but justice has to come soon. It can't just say it'll happen and then nothing, nothing happens. Somebody has to make a decision. This review has to come to an end at some point. I just wish they'd make a decision quickly. You know, because this thing also is stressful, the fact that this is hanging over you well, when, when am I getting out? You know, when am I getting out? Day in and day out, you know, it just wears you out. It's psychologically uh, draining. And please be aware that there's a lot of injustice in this world, and it's people, we always think it'll never happen to me, but it does happen. I certainly never thought it would happen to me. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, 
will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.